The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this podcast series, we have been discussing the topic of eschatology. The subject of eschatology, as stated, is the question of when things will happen within God's redemptive plan. In this series, we have focused on Leviticus chapter 23 and other corresponding texts within the Bible that discuss the feasts and festivals of the Jewish year. Thus far in our series, we have outlined and discussed the spring-slash-summer festivals or feasts which take place beginning in the month of Nisan, the first, and continue onwards throughout the Jewish year. In total, as we pointed out, there are seven major feasts or festivals detailed in God's Word prophetically which outline His redemptive plan of eschatology. Thus far we have detailed Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost. 
And as we pointed out, each of these feasts or festivals, which was detailed and commanded by God in Leviticus chapter 23, were fulfilled in exact, precise detail 2,300 years later during the life and ministry and death of Jesus of Nazareth. For those of you who might be listening to this podcast for the first time, I would highly encourage you to go back to the beginning in episode one and start there in order to catch up to this point. At this point, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I have been listening to your podcast and to the previous episodes, which, according to you, brought us to the feast and festival of uh, Pentecost, which was in the Jewish month of Sivan, which is equates to our Gregorian month of May or June. Further, you might be guessing to yourself that from this point forward, there are three more festivals or feasts detailed in Leviticus, that being the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So your question might very well be, if all of this is true, then wouldn't the final three feasts or festivals detailed in Leviticus have taken place in the same time frame immediately following Pentecost? In other words, all in the same year as God outlined them? And the answer to your question would be, that's a possibility. However, we have to look at the totality always of God's word in context in order to see what it is he's doing within his redemptive plan. Overall, as a spoiler, here we're making the case within this presentation that the first four feasts or festivals outlined in Leviticus represent uh, Jesus, the Messiah's first coming. In other words, as we look at the first four, we see uh, that prior to the Passover, we find that Jesus was incarnated as a human being and was fully man and fully God, grew to maturity, and then in the fullness of time, according to God's sovereign plan, was selected as the Paschal Lamb, as we already pointed out. He was then, four days later, crucified as the Paschal Lamb on Nisan the 14th. The next day, Nisan the 15th, he became our unleavened bread, the type of sinless perfection as fully God and fully man. Then we had the Feast of Firstfruits, wherein Christ ascended to the Father on that Sunday morning and became the first of those who were to be resurrected in uh, type. And then finally, 50 days later, we find the Feast of Pentecost taking place, which was in, in type the beginning of the reaping of the harvest of wheat, which represents the Gentile nations. And in substance, we find that just coincidentally, that on that same 50th day, 2300 years later, 
we find the church being born in Acts chapter 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as we pointed out, that subsequently we find that passage in Acts also where Jesus ascends to the Father as his disciples are looking and the two unidentified men who are standing by advise all those who are watching, telling them that Jesus will return in like manner as he was then leaving, opening the door for his second coming, which would be in the fullness of time according again to God's sovereign plan. Now, constructively speaking, God could have come that same year. However, as we look at the fullness of Scripture, we see from cover to cover that there is a plan wherein there is an undetermined period of time wherein God is harvesting his church, the elect, the outcalled ones from the world to himself. Therefore, potentially, we find that there is theoretically a break between the Feast of Weeks and Pentecost and the next festival on God's redemptive calendar, which is the Feast of Trumpets. Now you ask, where biblically do we find evidence for this break? Let's hold that question just for a moment, and let's review what we know of prophecy and eschatology in terms of the understanding of the church looking at God's word in context. In general, as we look at Orthodox Christianity and its beliefs based upon the totality of Scripture, we find eight fundamental facts or common denominators, if you will, which all born-again Bible-believing Christians hold to be true and which define orthodoxy. Number one, Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth literally, visibly, and personally. This is obvious from uh, starting with the Apostles' Creed, and every subsequent creed thereafter states that Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of God the Father, the Almighty, from thence shall he come to judge the living and the dead, and that I believe in the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This was the confession and creed of every gathering of Christians from the time that uh, the Bible was written in the first century until now. Secondly, all the dead will be resurrected. Thirdly, the Christians who are alive at Christ's second coming will be transformed without tasting death. Fourthly, all non-Christians will stand before Christ for judgment. Fifthly, all Christians will stand before Christ. Sixth, the present world will be destroyed by fire and a new world will be created. Seven, the righteous will go into eternal conscious blessedness, and number eight, the wicked will go into eternal conscious torment. 
All these eight are beliefs which can be found in virtually every creed and confession, as I stated, from the time of the apostles until the present, at least in terms of Orthodox Christianity. Secondly, as we look at the beliefs, confessions, and tenets of Orthodox Christianity, what we see presented by the Bible and the understanding of the Church is that almost all Orthodox Christians agree on three things regarding a great tribulation which is presented in the Bible. Firstly, there is coming a time of great tribulation as the world has never seen. This is clearly taught repeatedly in many places throughout the Bible. In the Olivet Discourse, in Revelation, in uh, Thessalonians, in Daniel, and in other places. Secondly, that at some time around the tribulation, Christ will return to establish his kingdom on earth. And thirdly, there will be a rapture, a quote-unquote catching away from mortality to immortality for believers as described in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 and 52, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17. The only question regarding the timing of the rapture is when it will occur in relation to the tribulation and or the second coming. What we've been proposing within this series, which is absent for the most part within uh, evangelical uh, Christianity, is to look at the Jewish feasts and festivals in detail and to understand that those feasts and festivals which occur within the Jewish year are going to give us details on the first coming, the second coming, the tribulation, the rapture, and the general timing that God has in his sovereign will declared. So this information just reinforces what we've already been talking about with regard to the fact that we, as Orthodox Bible-believing Christians know and believe, based on God's word, that Christ is coming for his church, that there will be a tribulation, there will be a second coming, and there will be an eternity wherein those who believe in Christ and have a relationship with him will enter into his presence and fullness of joy and those who have rejected and rebelled against him will enter into eternal conscious punishment. The question is when. Now, in order to set the stage in the foundation of uh, the question of when and the timing of what, uh, when these last three festivals will be, we need to digress for a moment to... Uh, the subject of Daniel's 70 weeks of years. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with this, in the book of Daniel, we find 
the person named Daniel from which uh, the name of a the name of this book obtains its title and Daniel is a Jewish scholar at this point who is reading God's word the scrolls Daniel is in fact studying a copy of the scroll of Jeremiah and in doing so as he's reading Daniel realizes that God has prophesied in the book of Jeremiah that he and his people the Jewish people will be in captivity for 70 years and that those 70 years are now at the point that Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah almost complete as a result of this Daniel goes into prayer mode and begins to uh, petition God that he would in fact follow up on his faithfulness and Daniel begins to pray and lament over the sins of the Jewish people. As a result of Daniel's faithful prayer, God gives Daniel a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 which is often referred to as the 70 weeks of years. Now at this point we do not have time for a complete an exhaustive study of Daniel's 70 weeks of years. We're going to have to suffice for a summarization at this point as to what Daniel's 70 weeks of years entails. So, number one, most people, most scholars agree that the 70 weeks of years is ultimately equal to 490 Jewish years. Number two, there is some debate about when exactly the 490 years started, but that being said, we have several potential years that we can look at. Number three, there's also some debate about how to precisely calculate these years and how they correspond from Jewish to Gregorian years. Number four, most people agree that the 490 years are broken up with several milestone events within the whole. Number five, one of the main theories is that 483 years from whenever the uh, 490 total year starts takes us up to the crucifixion and death of Jesus of Nazareth and then at that point there is yet another seven years which is still remaining in order to total up to the 490 which will take place somewhere in the future. Number six, one of the issues under debate by some is what's called the quote-unquote gap theory which is an undefined period of time between Jesus' death and the last seven years, which is sometimes called the, quote, the church age, unquote. Number seven, there is a seven-year period left to conclude Daniel's 70 weeks of years, which is generally called, quote, the great tribulation, unquote. And number eight, finally, there's an event yet future called quote-unquote, the rapture, where God's elect are caught up to be with the Lord, 
the exact timing of which is relative to the Great Tribulation and or the seven years of Daniel's 70 weeks of years, which is still under debate. The main point here being that as you read Daniel chapter 9 all the way through to Daniel chapter 12, and compare that to uh, historical events which took place during Jesus' lifetime and elsewhere, what we see is that uh, there are events portrayed in Daniel chapter 9 which are exactly precisely fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth during his life, ministry, and death detailed in the New Testament. Then there are other specific issues that are prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 through Daniel chapter 12, which clearly seem to be issues which have not yet occurred. In other words, they are future issues still at this point in time which have not taken place. Thus, many people see that there is a gap somewhere between Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 12, which is called the gap theory, wherein, again, we have this unknown, undetermined period of time wherein God is harvesting, reaping in his elect, the church, over the period of time until that point in time when, again, he decides that harvest is complete and his eschatological calendar begins ticking again. Now you might say, okay, that's an interesting theory there based on Daniel chapter 9 through chapter 12, which at points is sometimes admittedly cryptic. And you ask, do we have any other evidences to support the gap theory? The answer being, I believe so. The first would be Romans chapter 11, verse 25, which says, quote, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, unquote. So here, Paul is discussing and lamenting over the state of affairs regarding his people, Israel, the Jewish people, who have uh, largely denied Jesus of Nazareth as being the Messiah. And thus it appears to some extent that God has turned his back on the Jewish people. But here, Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. What we have here is a mystery that many are unfamiliar with, or to be blunt, ignorant of. He says that blindness has come in and has happened to Israel. Why? Because God is using that opportunity in that period of time, as Romans 11.25 says, to use that period of time for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. In other words, 
Uh, God has not forgotten his people. He's just using this period of time while they're, for the most part, in denial about Jesus of Nazareth to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles, at which point, when it is full, God will return to his people and they will see him who they have pierced. They will understand. Their eyes will no longer be holden. Secondly, we see historically, as we look at the issue of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish people, Orthodox Judaism and Christianity, what we see is that as we read the Old Testament, we see passages there that talk about the Messiah in various ways. On the one hand, we find verses that talk about the Messiah as a conquering Messiah, a, a person who is going to gather all nations and rule with a rod of iron and restore the Jewish nation. On the other hand, we find verses that speak about the Messiah as a suffering Messiah who will die for the sins of his people. And in other cases, we find a discussion of both almost uh, seemingly as though they were one. And the problem winds up being that there's a lack of discernment that there, is it one? Is it two? Is it both? Is it either? So the answer to the question becomes we have one Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua of, of Nazareth, who has two appointments with mankind. The first being as a suffering Messiah who dies for the sins of his people. And then we have a Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who will return and be a conquering Messiah at some point in time. But the two are separated by an undetermined, unknown period of time again. Thirdly, we find an example uh, from none other than the Lord himself in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, where he outlines and gives credence to the fact that there is a gap, an unknown period of time. Let's look at it. If you will, open your Bible to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Here in Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus of Nazareth in the uh, temple speaking to the Jewish people here. And he says, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, unquote. Now, what's remarkable about that, you say? Well, 
it turns out that Jesus of Nazareth was here quoting almost verbatim from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 2. Now, I highly encourage you that if you have the ability to do so, to take two Bibles and to put them side by side and compare the two quotes. Here in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2, we find the following, quote, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Pause right there. At this point, the two verses between Luke chapter 4 verses 18 through 20 and Isaiah 61 through 1 through 2 are exactly the same and Jesus is here in saying in Luke chapter 4 that he has fulfilled it that day. Remember, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, he stops at the end of the sentence in Luke saying to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. The rest is commentary where he says, and he closed the book and said that this is fulfilled. But when you go to Isaiah and where it says at the end to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, you will find that there's no period there. There's in fact a comma. A comma means you're supposed to continue because it's part of the same material. Well, what follows? It says in total context, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. So, in Isaiah, we have additional information that Jesus did not quote in Luke. Why? Because the day of vengeance had not yet come. It was future. Therefore, he could not say it's fulfilled in your ears as he did in Luke. So, what are you saying? I'm saying that here that Jesus gives authority as God to articulate and define precisely the scripture that he himself has inspired through the Holy Spirit. He has taken effectively the comma that goes between Lord and then the and the day of vengeance and has created a gap where the comma belongs. The two issues are separated by an undetermined, undefined period of time that fits into the same ruler that we are now using for the feasts and festivals of the Lord. Now you may ask, is that it? Well, no, there are other scriptures, but here let me give you this, uh, which you should be familiar with. If you've been following uh, the uh, podcast in general, you will recall that there is a episode entitled The Ancient Jewish Wedding. Now, you'll recall that the, in summary, that the Ancient Jewish Wedding is basically a model of Jesus's 
or and or God's redemptive plan between Jesus, who is the groom, and the church and or Israel, who is his bride. Further, you will recall that uh, proscriptively, by historical and cultural habit, what happens within the ancient Jewish wedding is this. Once the bride and groom have signed the covenant with one another, have outlined all the terms and conditions, and have agreed to everything, at the very end of this agreement period, the bride and groom engage in a covenantal toast, at which point the two are considered legally married, yet they have not consummated their marriage. And it is at this point that, again, by tradition, that the groom makes a almost a scripted speech to the bride, wherein he says, I'm leaving now. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And once I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Words to that effect. Those words should sound very familiar because they are the almost precise words that Jesus himself uh, uses in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, where they are in the upper room, he and his disciples, and he's about to go to the cross and then ultimately die and be ascended to the Father. So what does he tell his disciples at this point? He tells them during this meal, this covenantal toast that they're partaking uh, together with in the upper room, he's, he tells them, quote, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also, unquote. Why is he using this language? Because Jesus and the disciples and all Jews understood and were familiar with the ancient Jewish wedding custom. They had probably been to dozens of weddings wherein this toast had taken place and wherein the groom would make this speech. So immediately when Jesus said it, it was ringing in their ears. He, they should have understood what was going on, that he was leaving them, that he had made them his bride, so to speak, the church. And he was the groom and he was leaving to go to his father's house, but he at some point would be returning. And this is the point of the Jewish, ancient Jewish wedding in connection to what we're talking about now, because it's also understood by tradition that the groom would separate from the bride after they made this toast and stay away at the father's house for a period of a year, two years, or thereabouts, where he would undergo building this place for his bride. And then after a year or two had taken place, it was the father's responsibility to tell the son when he believed that the mansion or the house was ready for the two, and he would give commandment to the son to return for the bride. Well, you say, what's significant about that? Well, what's significant about that is 
Our New Testament tells us exactly the same thing. It is God the Father who will tell Jesus the Son when to return for his bride. And then, going back to the Jewish uh, wedding, is at that point when the Father tells the Son to return, that he in fact returns for his bride in this triumphal march, if you will, usually late at night, with shouting and with blowing of trumpets and with fanfare. And when he gets to the bride's house and the bride is waiting, preparing herself, he ceremonially abducts the bride. You say, what in the world? Why would they do that? Because it's God is the one who instituted this tradition, if you will. It goes back to Abraham and before. And God's trying to communicate through this ancient Jewish wedding as a model what will happen in type when the substance plays out. So just exactly as the type, we have the substance wherein Jesus will ceremonially return with a blowing of the trumpet and with a ceremonial abduction, if you will, a rapture, a catching up of his bride. Now, is that all? No. What happens next? By tradition, they meet together as this ceremonial abduction is taking place. They meet together under this hoopah. It's a white cloth that has four corners to it, held up on each of the corner with poles. The bride and groom meet gathered together. You say, what, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Here again, Paul speaking to the Thessalonian church who wanted to know about the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, and they were confused and upset and scared and being told all kinds of crazy stuff. And Paul is here reassuring them in this chapter saying, quote, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, in other words, those that are dead, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Christ, God will bring with him. Verse 15, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together, where? With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 17 and verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. So what's the connection there? We see that this visualization of the believers who are caught up together with those, with all believers, in the clouds, 
to meet the Lord in the air. That is the picture, the substance of the type that we see in the chuppah, where the bride and groom, those that are Christ's bride, his church, the elect, the outcalled ones, are all gathered together under this white sheet typifying the clouds in heaven where we meet together and we are ever with the Lord. That's the picture. Each and every one of these things that we have discussed and outlined and many others which we haven't touched on all point to the same thing, that there is a gap, an undetermined, undefined period of time between the time that Jesus ascended to the Father and the time when God the Father will send him to return to gather his elect from the earth via the rapture. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Don't, don't